So um, I went and signed up for Oracle Cloud. Ooh, look out. <laughs> well, now you can do a cross-connect to it, mate. Well, I want to find out what this is all about. Oh, yes. They, um, they, they sent me a badge. Oh, okay. They, they sent me a badge saying that I'm a founding member. Really? A founding member of Oracle Cloud? Well, because there's no one else on there. <laughs> Welcome to GCP Life, episode number 45 for the 28th of July, 2023. GCP Life is sponsored by Kazna. At Kazna, we make your Google Cloud solutions possible. And I'm your host, Stephen Bancroft. On today's show, Google Cloud actually makes some money. We take a look at the HWL Ebsworth breach, and we've got some new GCP features. But before we get to any of that... I'd like to introduce the co-host of the show, Ian Brown. How you going, Ian? I'm good, mate. How are you doing? Yeah, good, mate. Good, good. Nice quick intro, that one. Yeah. Yeah. Um, what's What's been happening in the fortnight for you? Because, you know, we had... Well, actually, it's like what, 13 days because we recorded on Saturday last time. Yeah. It, <laughs> it's, been a, it's been a bit of a short time. But, uh, look, a, a lot of cleaning, uh, an awful yep. lot of cleaning. Um I've still got red dirt in places <laughs> that you you just you sort of open up the the gear bags that we had and there's red dirt inside yeah. them and I'm like they've been washed twice. Yeah, uh, right. <laughs> and uh, it, it'll yeah, yeah, it'll take years to get it all oh, out. It's everywhere. It's all underneath the car still. I just I can't get it off under the car. I've um, yeah, look, I, I've had to take the camper trailer down to um, the manufacturer for repairs. Yep. Which they're they're doing at the moment. Um, we hope to get it back in a couple of weeks so we can go camping. But, nice. But yeah, it's it's been a busy week. I'm sort of doing some pre-sale stuff at work here, and yeah, been been hectic. Yeah. Well, uh, the status on my car is it's back in Sydney. Uh, it's at the Engine Rebuilder place um, uh, in the, in the western suburbs of Sydney. And uh, yep, I've I've got a contract all, all agreed on. Deposits are paid, and it's it's happening. It's nice. all happening. Nice. So um, they they've told me um once the engine they've acquired an engine, uh, assuming there are no problems, uh, it'll be five to six weeks for the installation and testing and tuning. Yeah, right. So um, yeah, maybe end of August, perhaps start of September. I'll have a yeah, effectively. Brand new engine, um, you know, and yeah, purring like a kitten. I hope nice, and you can make some choo choo noises. I can make some choo choo noises. That's right, <laughs> <laughs> and maybe some spinny noises on the ground as well. But <laughs> we'll see. Uh, Two hundred and fifty horsepower at the wheels. That's a that's a fair amount. Uh, it'll yeah, well, in the eight hundred newton meters will do it. Yep. But, uh Yeah, we'll, we'll we'll have some fun. I can't wait to go out and have a drive in it. But um, yeah, I'll keep you updated with that. But uh, I've, uh, in the meantime, I've I got myself a Pixel Watch. Yes, I know. I, I remember you saying that while we're in, um, I can't remember where we were. We might have been at Atherton or Winton or somewhere like that. Yeah, so the way it worked out is um, I, I I was rock, rocking the Fitbit before. That's the old Fitbit there. I'm probably going to give that to my son. But uh, I've got the Pixel Watch here, and I think retail... 800-ish or something, 700, 800. I couldn't, honestly couldn't tell you because my wife bought it for me. But yeah, right. the, the, way, the way it came about for us was she wanted a new phone. So she bought for, you know, for a business. So she bought herself a Pixel 7a. Um, they give you a credit. They give you a voucher, like a $50 voucher to spend at the Google store. Nice. This is on the Google store online. Mm. And then she said, well, my iPad's a bit old. I said, well, why don't you get a Pixel tablet? She yeah. got the voucher there, so she got the Pixel tablet, which is actually great because that sits, you know, in the as the nest in in the kitchen, and I can play Spotify and all the rest on. It. And then she wants to use a tablet; she just pulls it off, and she can use the tablet, right? Yeah, nice. Um, but they give you another voucher, so she got a two hundred and fifty dollar voucher after buying that. And then, of course, the end of year sale came, and the Pixel was like another additional two hundred or three hundred bucks off. And with the voucher, they let us take the discount as well. 
Wow. So I ended up getting the Pixel ta- the, the Pixel Watch for like 130 bucks. Oh, that's awesome. So couldn't say no, right? I had no. to get it. Yeah, 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 exactly. Right? <laughs> <laughs> um, so, look, I mean, it's got some nice faces on it. That, that I don't know if you can see that, but that's like they call that pilot, that, that interface. Oh, right. Know? I don't, I don't it just, mind that. It looks like and, an analog watch to me. Yeah, it just <laughs> looks like an analog watch. And you can change the face, right? There's all different ones. Yeah, cool. Um, you can answer, you can do, you can answer, it's a smartwatch, so you can answer the calls on it, and I've done that a few times, you just answer the call on it, and you can talk on it, and that, that's fine, it's a little bit quiet, so you've got to hold it up to your ear. Um, you've got navigation, you've got all the apps and everything on it, that's fine, um, but the battery life, I, I'm so, I'm really disappointed with the battery life. Actually, okay. you know, the... The build, before I get on to that, the build is really good. The band's really good. Much better than the than the Fitbit bands. These Fitbit bands are notorious. They break all the time. Oh, yeah. The, the, the band on this is, is really quite good. Uh, the build quality, I'm more than happy with. Uh, it's not too heavy on the wrist, right? It looks great. That's all good. The battery life sucks. Right. Absolutely sucks. Um, I've gone through and tried to turn off as much features as I can. Uh, they say... That the Google, uh, the Hey Google, um, be careful, I don't, tr- oh jeez, I think I just triggered my phone, <laughs> stop, <laughs> cancel, that feature, yep. that, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, they say does suck the battery life, um, so I've turned that off, Okay. Um, I've turned off the, the tilt to display because that triggers the face to come on and all the rest of it, um, still, if I have it running all day and then I come back to my desk and sit down, it's down to about 40% battery. After, wow! After twenty four hours, yeah, okay, yeah, it's terrible. And I, I'm used to I'm used to this Fitbit where it will run for nearly two weeks mm. on a single charge. Yeah, I, I tend to get so because I've got a Fitbit as well. Um, I tend to get about two weeks out of a Fitbit charge, and I, I just really just charge it in the car and take my son to school. And by the time I get yeah, back, which, it's done. Yeah, now it's not like a phone, right? Like a phone, I just stick it on charge overnight, and you don't think about it. Hmm. Like, if you want to get this, this is collecting my biometrics. So, if I want to get the sleep data, I've got to have it on while I'm asleep. I can't have it on charge. Yeah, that's and right. Anytime, anytime I've got it on the charger, and they give you this induction charger, right? That's it there. No, okay. Right? You, that looks suspiciously like the uh, Apple one. Yeah, it just goes underneath. Hmm. Whenever you've got it off your wrist, you're not getting any biometrics. It's not collecting your steps or, or any rest of it like that. And it takes quite a while to charge to get it okay. and what i've read on site on online is get it to 100 percent and then keep it on charge for another half hour so what, what ends up happening because i'm distracted and i'm doing other things it just sits on charge for like four hours of the day and you're missing out on all that data yeah right that that, that like as a a fitness tracker having to be on charge that long Almost makes it unusable as a fitness tracker. Yeah, it really does. It's it's just not practical. Uh, that is by far my biggest gripe with it. Um, the the other thing that was annoying me um, was the the touch to wake. So you would just tap it and it would wake up, which in itself is fine. But you know it's a waterproof device, and you have it on when you're in the shower. When the raindrop, when the water drops in the shower, would hit it, it would turn it on. Oh, and so then it's, it would so go- it's not capacitive like tap. It's it's not actually feeling your finger like the the capacitance there. It's actually seeing like a vibration or something. I don't know, but the water in the shower would wake it up, would turn it on. Right. That. However, whatever. Yeah. Whatever. And then it would go into menus and it would click around and turn things. Why is it doing this? Oh, my old Apple Watch used to do that a little bit when I was in the pool yeah. more than anything. Right. But Something to do with the water, the, the inductance on the, the conduct capacitance. Yeah, well, I've got a saltwater pool, so it's like highly conductive. But- right. So I've turned off the tap to wake feature, and that seems to have improved it. Okay. Uh, I've also turned off the tilt to wake feature um, because they say that can save battery life, but mm-hmm. it does mean now I have to tap the crown to turn the watch on. Mm. Um, and the other thing that was irritating me and still does to a certain degree, is I've set on my Pixel um, uh, quiet time. So, you know, between 10 to 7, it automatically goes into Do Not Disturb. So you haven't got Facebook and everything pinging you yep. constantly while you're trying to sleep while yep. the phone's right next to your head, <laughs> right? No, the Pixel Watch completely ignores that. Oh, so, okay, so it doesn't follow. 
No, no. So you'd be asleep and it'd be pinging you and vibrating on your wrist and going off, even though the phone's mm. on silent. I wonder if that's just an evolution of this is the first generation of Pixel Watch that's come out and they're, they're not quite on top of it yet. Uh, yeah, but I would have thought it would inherit the settings from the phone. I mean, come on. You'd How hope hard so. is that? Because I remember when I was on the Apple ecosystem, I had the mm. the Apple phone and the and the Apple Watch. And and every time I put the phone into flight mode, the watch would automatically go into flight mode. And the only the inverse of that was not correct, because when you took the phone out of flight mode, the watch already had Bluetooth turned off, so I had no idea. But you couldn't do it. Yeah, yeah. but yeah. but same same with like um, I think they they call it it's like quiet time mode or bedtime mode or something like that. Yeah, um, that happened with the watch as well. So if the phone wasn't alerting you, the watch wouldn't either. Yeah, that's right. So I've since discovered the bedtime mode. Mm-hmm. Right now, now here's the other thing: to get to bedtime mode, you've got to flick down. You got to flick down and then press the button on the left. Right. Now, I know that because I've done it so many times, but it doesn't do it all. I've not found a way to do it automatically, right? And my 50-year-old eyes cannot see the button. When I'm going to bed, I don't have my glasses on, right? And I only know it's there purely through uh, muscle memory. Right, right. So there needs to be a way to quickly activate the bedtime mode Well, uh, or have it on a schedule. it It should just follow the phone. If the phone's in bedtime mode, the watch should be too, because theoretically, the phone's right by your head as well. That's right. And if I don't want the phone picking me, I certainly don't want the watch picking me. Is, is, does, does the Pixel, okay, the Pixel does have bedtime mode, right. Mm. Okay, so I've not, my previous phone did not have bedtime mode, and this is, this is new to me on the phone, so... Okay, thanks for pointing that to me. I'm going to have to go and have a look at that and see if that will sync to the watch because that will that will solve everything. Yeah, yeah, that will that will be a big one, a big solve. Let's let's hope that. it does because that's yeah. that seems like a massive oversight if it doesn't. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, absolutely. Good, good. I'm glad to talk to you about these things, Ian, because yeah. you know, <laughs> I'm a wealth of knowledge, mate. Just ask and me. A wealth of knowledge. <laughs> So, so that might be insurmountable, but the, the, the battery life is not. The battery life is terrible. Yeah. So, yeah, I, 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 if you're used to long battery life on a watch, I'd keep away from the Pixel Watch for the moment. Well, the, the Apple Watch is exactly the same. They, they let generally last a day, day and a bit. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, um, yeah, that's my little mini review of the Pixel Watch. Uh, what's Melon Husk been up to? <laughs> so, <laughs> as it turns out, he's decided he's going to – uh, redo the logo of Twitter. Um, the bird uh, is dead. It is now I, I, X. I, it's just I, I just quickly it's, when it's, you you put X in the in the run sheet, I quickly looked it up and I was just like, oh no, <laughs> that's where all the because I wasn't really following it. That's where all the dead bird uh, memes have come from in yes, the last couple of days. Right. That, that's right. Look, we we shouldn't spend any time talking about it, but we it can't go without mentioning like. It is beyond ludicrous oh. what is going on with Twitter. Beyond ludicrous. Yeah. Yeah. So, and it's so, <laughs> so that the thing here says, uh, and I'm just quoting something that I found on Google when I just searched for Twitter X. Um, Twitter was acquired by X Corp, both to ensure the freedom yep. of speech as, as an accelerant for X, the everything app. Um, so I, I saw a meme. Um, we don't tweet anymore. We do excretions. <laughs> uh, I can't condone that. <laughs> oh, look, let's not waste any more time. On no, Should we let's, get on let's with the show? Talk about that anymore. <laughs> let's get on with the show, eh? Yeah. All right. Let's move on with the community news. All right, we've got uh, one community news item this week, and it's from friend of the show, Rick Elsom. Um, if you're in Perth, um, Google Developers Group in Perth is doing DevFest. Um, and uh, I'll just read from their little flyer here. Uh, Get ready to elevate your business to new heights at the GDG Perth event, proudly supported by the esteemed city of Canning. So this is a uh, city-endorsed GDG event. Um, going to be held at the Hillview Intercultural Centre 
uh, and just reading through the program here, they've got, uh, it's good, it starts at uh, five o'clock in the evening, I'd imagine, some networking, opening remarks, the keynote session, uh, a global cafe, okay. It sounds networking interesting. There, and then closes at eight o'clock. Um, Rick Elsom um, is uh, going to be there as one of the Mantle Group Kasna experts. And uh, yeah, got a, got a host of speakers there. Looks like it's going to be a fun event. Yeah, it does, doesn't it? Looks like a cracking little event. Oh, good on him. And I'm glad to see GDG Perth is um, is going strong. I always like the GDG events. I've got to get, yes. uh, get back into organising GDG's Brisbane's next event. Yeah, because you're, you're, you're doing them quite... You were doing them quite often there, weren't you? Yeah, but then I went away for three weeks. Yeah, <laughs> get back into it again. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, if you're in Perth, then make sure you get over to that. Uh, looks like the opening remark will be from the mayor himself. Wow. Uh, the mayor of the city of Canning. So, um, yeah, be some good stuff. Mm. All right, then, let's get on with the news items. Quick little news item here to kick things off. Bit of a success story. Um, Australia Post uses vision for site safety. And uh, I believe Kasna had a little bit to do with this, right? Yeah, as far as I'm aware, we I mean, we've been working with Australia Post for, for some time now. Um, but but I love this. It, it's, a, it, it's sort of a great little success story here in that they, they've got uh, – They've got cameras in their in their um, parcels or delivery network facilities, they call them. Um, and what they're doing is feeding that into Google's vision, um, machine learning and computer vision technology and detecting when um, people are putting themselves in danger mm. um, within the works, workplace or going into an area that could put them in danger. So they can catch that before it happens or, or as it's happening. And um, and potentially, the idea here is to save people's lives, limbs, and and um, stop people from getting injured in the workplace. Yeah, to take a quote from the article here, these cameras are now able to detect if any team member moves into an unsafe zone, alerting the management of team breaches so we can keep our team safe. That's cool. It is. It's really cool. Uh, the the. I suppose the caveat to that um, is I hope I hope it doesn't end up getting used as a monitoring device for mm. for employees because look it yep. can yeah an oversight or like a micromanagement tool that'd be horrible yeah it would be yeah yeah I, I saw a, a thing a, a similar thing using AR technology um, and oh, the specific example I saw is you might have like a a um a digger or backhoe or something and um a virtual playfield is installed on that and it can only move so far so that it can't hit power lines or other things like or swing out in front of trains or anything like that yeah, cool. so it, it stays within the guardrails very nice yeah i used to um, i used I to s- work quite a bit on drill rigs and and yeah. as offsiders for excavators back in my construction days and uh and yeah, I, we did a offsiding for a drill rig on the railway lines, filling in a an old coal mine. And I can yep. tell you now how how scary that is when you've got the drill rig, which is quite a big device, and it's um, the main boom that's on it. It sits up between the power lines on the on the yeah. railway line, and you're just sort of sitting there going, "You've only got to move a foot in either direction," and you start arcing out on the power lines. Yeah. It's it's a game of millimeters. It is. Yeah, that's uh, a lot of power. So yeah, I, I, I guess this vision API is sort of the same sort of thing, but for people, right? Mm. Uh, yeah. No, that's cool. Yeah, cool. All right, let's let's move on. Look at a couple of new Google Cloud features. Um, so Ian, you brought this to my attention. Cloud Deploy gets deploy parameters, new console creation flows, and reduced pricing. I did. So uh, announced. Uh, not that long ago, it was only um, it was only a couple of days ago. I saw this article, and um, Google has implemented uh, deploy parameters, which you, which are just key value pairs um, that are applied in Cloud Deploy at the sort of the last mile of that deployment. So it sort of gives us the capability, much like uh, 
if if any of the listeners have used Octopus Deploy, they've got their substitutions or variable substitutions there. Uh, this gives you that exact same capability there where you can substitute one uh, parameter for another. And, um, and they've also reduced the price. So Cloud Deploy's um, no-charge usage now includes all single-target delivery pipelines. And they've also reduced the price for multi-target delivery pipelines. So it's a, it's a cool new little feature. Um, I haven't had a chance to play with it just yet, uh, but it looks really promising and it gives us the ability to deploy to, deploy to a whole heap of different uh, targets and do it quite cleanly straight after you've done a build. I think the aim here is that Cloud Deploy is a tool used after Cloud Build to deploy to specific technologies. So you can use it to do um, GKE deployments, for instance. Um, that would be my, mm-hmm. my primary use case. So one of, the, one of the examples they give you in this is that uh, you can specify multiple different environments. And if you're deploying to a specific environment, you can set the number of replicas for the deployment. So you can say I see. you can say like okay I've got this um, I've got this JavaScript front end here and in dev I only want it to have one replica uh, versus in production I actually want it to have three replicas or ten replicas or something like that and there you deploy parameters so you can just update the manifest before it's mm-hmm. deployed in that last mile just before it's deployed and substitute in the number of replicas you need in your Kubernetes cluster that's right yeah yeah. Yeah, I suppose another good use case there would be if you do have, um, if you are using Kubernetes or Cloud Run or anything like that 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 you're deploying to. Another really cool use case which I've seen a lot is um, you, your file uploads. They've got to go somewhere. You can't store them on a container because the container is is not persistent. So you'd have a cloud storage bucket, for instance substitute that cloud storage bucket variable in your deployment so that each deployment when you're deploying dev or prod or whatnot it has those buckets um, automatically set upon deployment as opposed to having some script say if development if environment equals development do this bucket i see right that makes sense Mm. yeah i'm just reading here at the end of the article here uh, Google Cloud deploys adds Canary and Parallel deployment support. Uh, with support for Canary and Parallel deployment, Google Cloud Deploy provides enhanced deployment capabilities to GKE, Cloud Run, and Anthos. Yes, Anthos is a big one. Yeah. We're, we're, yeah. We seem to be doing more and more Anthos, and it's something I've never touched. Yep, yep. Well, I, I've got a plan for that, Ian. Don't you worry. Oh. I've got a plan for that. <laughs> that scares me. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, all right, then, let's move on. Let's have a, look, a quick look at the next new feature. Um, once again, Ian, you brought this to my atten- attention. Uh, configure cleanup policies. Cleanup policies are useful if you store many versions of your artifacts but only need to keep specific versions that you release to production. You can define delete policies with criteria for deleting artifacts and keep policies with criteria for retaining artifacts. Yeah. So this is Artifact Registry. This is a, uh, a pre-GA offering, so it's not um, it's not fully SLA covered yet. Uh, but a really common problem that you've got with Artifact Registry is, and, and same with the old Container Registry, was that you would be building, and I know previous businesses that I've worked in, you'd be building at least five or six or seven um, images a day from different mm. branches that are going into the repo. And you don't want to keep all of that because... You just end up with all this clutter. Oh, it's massive, massive yeah. amounts of data that, you, that you're storing. So these policies allow you to remove artifacts that you don't need anymore, um, which is cool because that reduces the cost to you and it ca- helps to keep your repository nice and clean. Um, there's some limits, obviously. Uh, again, pre-GA, so it's not covered by SLA at this point. Um, will be in the future, I'm sure. Uh, you can only do 300,000 deletions per repository per day, just in case <laughs> you were deciding to do a million. <laughs> um, and you can only apply a maximum of 10 cleanup policies to a repository. And lastly, it supports all repository form 
repository formats except apt and yum repositories. Right. So, obviously, a artifact registry allows you to do all sorts of different repos um, from uh, app or Linux repo type things to container repositories and, and all the rest. Uh, apt and yum, so Linux repos are not supported at this point. Yeah. Uh, it looks pretty simple to do. You just define your policy with a YAML file. Uh, they've got some some example formats of that here. Give it a name, action, and then some conditions. Um, and then uh, that'll set the policy. That's it. And uh, is it... Uh, I suppose you can set in the conditions how often it's going to run. Uh, or it'll, it'll just run continuously and you just set a newer then and an older then. I yeah, see. It's, right. Yeah, it's just... Yep. It's just a constant we'll just match thing. that. Yep. Yep. Uh, and you can do a dry run test as well. Always handy. Yes. Uh, in case you <laughs> we don't want to blow away the entire repository. <laughs> Did you imagine that? <laughs> oh, yeah. Just accidentally uh, destroyed to the repository. But it's okay. It's <laughs> okay. We can rebuild it. Uh, and there you go. All right. I'll put a link for that, for that in the show notes. Um, looks like a really cool tool. Yeah. All right then. Um, after seeing those few new features, let's let's have a little dive into here and see how much how well Google Cloud's going financially. Because I hear that we've had some uh, revenue growth. There has been a lot of revenue growth. It's it, it's quite fantastic to see uh, to see how well Google Cloud is doing of late. So, article from GeekWire that I'll link in the show notes. Uh, Google Cloud posts second straight profitable quarter on 28% revenue growth. Google Cloud boosted its operating profits to $395 million for the second quarter, an improvement of close to $1 billion from its loss of $590 million. So, they've gone to an improvement of a billion dollars after its loss of 590 in the same quarter a year ago in 12 months. Yeah, yeah that's fantastic, oh, isn't it? Oh, it's starting to turn a profit, yeah. And, and, I'll, and I, have to, I have to do it. I have to quote our old co-host, more billions is better. <laughs> <laughs> more billions is better. <laughs> Dave Wall, I'm thinking of you. <laughs> yeah. Shout out to Dave. Hope you're going well. Um, Google Cloud revenue rose 28% to more than $8 billion in the second quarter. Just going from strength to strength. Yeah, they are. And, and Alphabet's overall revenue rose too, 7% to $74.6 billion, with a net income of yeah. $18.4 billion, um, which is, is phenomenal. Like this, this year, Google Cloud's been running at a loss for some time, um, and now we're starting to see that, that turn where they've, they've made up that ground and they're starting to make money again. But why? But why are we asking him? Why? Well, Pinch Eyes credited the growth to factors including the use of, guess what? Google Cloud infrastructure by customers for <laughs> training and developing generative AI models. Of course, it came down to AI. Of course. <laughs> yeah. Hang on. Hang on. We need, the, we need the button, the generative AI button. AI. 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 Generative AI. Generative AI. Generative AI. 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 Um, AI. Alphabet's AI. overall AI. revenue rose 7%, as we said, yeah, uh, to, uh, they've got the numbers here as well, $74.6 billion with a net income of $18.4 billion and earnings per share of $1.44. Nice. Yeah. Yeah, so it's it's topped uh, Wall Street's expectations across the board, which is great. Always good to hear. Um, you know, I, I I I can't help thinking if you know a few weeks ago we we reported on the the cloud wars mm. uh, and who the order of of the the cloud providers. Um, I think those guys would be having a good hard look at this, and I don't know how often they publish, but. You know, I would expect to see a few movements in that Cloud Wars table for sure. Yeah, definitely. So uh, Microsoft have already posted their cloud results, which I haven't had a look at because it's Microsoft. Um, mm. And AWS, much the same, uh, haven't had a look. They are set to post theirs next week, I think. So it might, okay, might well, be interested to do a comparison in the next podcast to see how they go. We going. might try and grab a par- comparison of that. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. Um. 
All right, cool. Well, um, yeah, that's that's some good news for money. But uh, we've 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 got um, quite a few security stories to get through this week. There's been quite a bit of movement um, with a few things that are happening in Australia as well. So um, we'll take a look at these. APRA, um, an article on IT News, APRA is tightening the screws a little bit. Um, Australia's banks and insurers have three years to renegotiate cloud and IT contracts. Now, this is interesting. This is. This Uh, this feels to me... And it doesn't say it in this article that I could see. Mm. This feels to me like APRA has, they've sort of had enough of the data breaches that we're seeing and they're, yeah, and they're like, yeah. right, enough is enough. It's time for you guys to to pick up your game and start acting. Now, now what are they actually asking here? I've got some quotes from the article. Are they asking uh, the financial institutes to completely renegotiate agreements or they've got to rene- renegotiate with these new terms that APRA are imposing Yeah, so they they it so there's new terms as part of uh, CPS 230. Uh, it says here contracts with material service providers should be updated as soon as possible given their importance mm. to crit- critical operations and operational risk. Um and CPS two, a key feature of CPS 230 is that it sets some standards for how quickly a bank or other entity needs to inform the regulator when it kicks in various incident response mechanisms. So this isn't necessarily yeah. specific to data breaches. This is any sort of incident response. Yeah, and data loss, mm, that's right. too, they're talking about. So the entity has no more than 72 hours to inform APRA of an incident that is likely. So they don't even need to necessarily definitely no mm. even if it's likely to have financial or operational repercussions so operational repercussions yeah. so cloudflare comes along and causes a massive outage yep. then they've got to rep- they've got to report That's it right, right? um cuz we'll get into that in a sec but they're they're a provider right um operational repercussions and no more than 24 hours to disclose if business continuity plans have been activated yeah so if you you're going you've got to go into a failover you've got 24 hours That's right you've got to inform apra yeah, and then and then the other one that I found there is um, APRA must also be notified prior to any offshoring agreement or a change to one, and then after an offshoring agreement is entered into or altered. So they're really, really tightening the screws about um, third parties that you can use and where that data is stored, and yep. they really and want they're oversight. not mucking around with. They're not mucking around with this as well because the article goes on to say while parts of the industry sought extra time. APRA declined extensions. Well, I mean, they already no. <laughs> they already delayed it. So APRA yeah. had intended to enforce CPS 230, uh, 230 from January 2024, so January next year. It's just like four months away, five months away. Mm. Um, mm. But it's it's pushed the start, ba- start date back to July 1st, 2025. So, I mean, they're already getting an extra year and a half to, to comply with this. Uh, I'm not mm. sure how much more time they need to comply with it. Right. Now, the rub is that um, under CPS 230, they face extra scrutiny on a number of fronts from architecture, geographical location of servers and services. Now, we've talked about that on the show before to the terms of the service agreement. Several providers, including Salesforce and AWS, took issue with requirements for financial institutions to specifically assess geographical locations and service concentration risks or were unsuccessful in having them excluded. So it sounds like they're going to insist, if you're an Australian financial institution, you've got to have your stuff in Australia. Yeah, 100%. And so you should do too. Now, I read another article and I can't find a link to it anywhere now. That, uh, that Salesforce was arguing that um, forcing them to reside inside of Australia would would mean that not all of their services are available and it would be a detriment to the to the customers and all this sort of stuff. Mm. But honestly, Salesforce, you're a big enough company. Um, put your stuff in Australia because the data sovereignty laws that and the the CPS two thirty ruling that APRA's got here means that if it isn't in Australia, it can't be used. Yeah, but I don't know about that particular rule. Like they're, they're going to enforce mm. it, but I, yeah, I, 
I've got my own thoughts on this. I actually don't think it makes a difference where the data is actually housed. Really, it doesn't. Like, you, you can still access it, um, if, whether it's in a server in a, in the US or in Australia. Does, does that really matter? It's the same security that's that's placed on it. Yeah, that's that, and that's it's all virtualized. That's the kicker. There is is I think this is more along the lines of APRA require under this two thirty um, auditing capability. They want to be able to walk into the data center and audit your equipment. Now it's interesting. That's something that Google already does. Google already gives a financial services provider or financial services licensee um, the ability or a, or a representative thereof, the ability to audit their data center. Yeah, so that's the other thing I was going to point out here. And CPS 230 contains clauses that, among other things, require contracts to allow APRA the right to conduct an on-site visit. Yep. And that's a direct quote from CPS 230 to a service provider engaged by a bank or other entity. AWS said that needed to be clarified. And you're right, Google already allows you to do That's this, right? right? It's, I'm not surprised that AWS are arcing up yeah, about well. this. Salesforce went further, stating customers may currently contact it to request an on-site audit of Salesforce processing activities in specific circumstances, but no blanket right of access is offered. In other words, you're not really allowed. We're not going to really let you in, but we might let some people in. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> right? So if you whinge enough. Yeah, right? that's it. And that's it. The squeaky wheel gets the oil. Yeah, yeah. Um, and that would extend to any contractor that a that an APRA-governed um, entity would use, yeah. right? So, once again, someone like Cloudflare, right, if they were using that, then they're exposed to this, right? I, Am I reading this yeah, right? Well, one hundred percent. I did like yeah. Microsoft's response too, which um, which is the paragraph underneath it, and it says Microsoft, meanwhile, noted that IT contracts could be complex, and that wouldn't at all be by their own doing, um, and have a number of component parts and interrelated services where individual reassessment and renegotiation could be time consuming. <laughs> In other words, we're going to muck you around for yeah. ages, and, and, and you may, you probably will never get. We're just in going anyway. to increase the price, <laughs> and we're going to make sure the user end user license agreement is so complex that you can't understand it. Neither can your lawyers. <laughs> yeah, but and that's the pessimistic this, this, side of me coming out. But that's, uh, they, I mean, that's a fairly common play by Microsoft anyway. Is just to make things yeah, so yeah. complex, it's so hard to interpret what you can and can't do. More convoluted, mm. yeah. This opens up an interesting can of worms. Like, um, in my way of thinking, if I was a third-party party provider of some, some you know, uh, SaaS product or whatever, I would have a checkbox on my sign-up and say, are you, you know, uh, governed by APRA? Hmm. And I have to have a checkbox there. And then, you know, you would have all the set out, all these conditions – um, and maybe deny them access to your service because you just don't want to take it on. Well, that could happen. And and look, it could yeah. happen to Salesforce now regardless. Like if Salesforce is saying, look, we're not going to let you, um, they're not going to give you the right to conduct an on-site visit, then APRA might turn around and say, well, in that case, then your service can't be used by financial services in Australia. And yep, that may well. I yeah, mean, you've got to think of that's yep. that would be millions and millions and millions of dollars a month down the drain. Yep, yep. Are they going to come to the party? Of course they will. That's the it's question. money. Yeah, yeah. That's yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, it. it I, I don't. I, I just can't see this being the only thing. I, I think there's going to be more regulations come out of this. We, we've got the. The Royal Air Marshal in place now. That's it. Um, the Royal yeah. Air Marshal. <laughs> <laughs> I forget his name. <laughs> you know who I'm talking yeah, about. <laughs> so, um, he's going to be pushing for more things like oh. this, no doubt, across other other sectors as well. Yeah, no, that's that's definitely the case. It's um, yeah. I can only see more regulation coming into financial services, uh, just due to the the current disastrous landscape we live in. Yep. Um, and while we're on it, talking about breaches and 
and uh, you know governance. Um, let's talk a little bit about the uh, HWL Ebsworth breach because some more information's come out on this, and I still think this is the tip of the iceberg. The Federal Fair Work Ombudsman. Of all the people, the Federal Fair Work Ombudsman is the latest Australian government agency to disclose some exposure to the May data breach experienced by law firm HWL Ebsworth. Well, it's one of two of the latest ones because the next article that we're covering is another government agency that's caught up in it, which is um, NDIA, which is the National Disability Insurance Agency. So... Yeah, that's. I mean, this is it. Literally, is we saw we saw a number of South Australian government entities. We saw um, the federal government, Queensland government, a whole heap of government organisations caught up in this, and it's just getting bigger and bigger and bigger. It's been reported that more than forty government agencies may have had their dealings with the law firm exposed. Yeah, yeah, and look, I. Yeah. I need to I need to congratulate HWL Ellsworth on this because from all the reports that I've read, uh, they are in direct contact with the affected departments who are and they're mm. being quite mm. open and and very specific on what has been breached uh, or mm. exposed, I should say, um, and working with them to to rectify the situation. So from all reports, that's good. It's not sort of a oh look no it, look. We, we didn't get breached, we didn't get breached. Oh, yeah, look, we did get breached, um, which has been the modus operandi of so many um, organisations yep. in Australia of late. <laughs> Let's just say if they, someone comes out and says, don't worry about it, the breach is not that big a deal. Yeah, it's huge. It's a big deal. It's huge. <laughs> yeah, it, it's, it's crazy. So, yeah, because we've got fair work now, uh, which is quite ironic. Um, and, and NDIA and NDIA again. This is this one's probably a little bit more disturbing to me um, because it affects um, disability uh, recipients. Right. right. Yeah, there could be some health information. In yeah, there. that's yep. right. So the NDIA has come out and said they're working closely with HWL Ebsworth to ensure those affected are appropriately identified, notified, and supported as they confirm what information has been affected. Um, yeah. Yep. Another quote here, the data set is large and unstructured yes. and includes complex mix of different types of documents and information affecting many different stakeholders. Because you can imagine being a law firm, right? They're, they're just collecting information for their, their cases and all the rest of it, and it could be anything. That's right. right. It could be anything that they're collecting in there. That's right. So, look, it's it just keeps getting bigger, but uh, again... I have to say that of all of the data breaches that we've seen this year alone, uh, this is possibly the one that's being handled the best. Potentially the most frightening as well. Well, that's true. Given the information that could be could have been exposed. Yeah, well, certainly, certainly for the disability recipients, that that this is going to be quite a quite a blow, and possibly for fair work as well. All right, let's move on. Uh, change tact here a little bit with uh, our. Sec- security items, we've actually got a hardware security problem from AMD. Um, AMD, uh, meet Zenbleed, a speculative execution bug hitting AMD processors. And here AMD were on their high horse laughing at Intel from their perch, but no, <laughs> they've got a speculative execution problem as well. Yeah, they do. And and this one was actually brought forward by a Googler. So uh, Tra- uh, Tavis Ormden- Ormandy sorry, uh, yep. of Google has let loose a microcode bug in a range of AMD processors, which he says allows attackers to get usernames and passwords while log on to being processed. Um, he found that the variant could leak about 30 kilobits per core per second, which is mm. perfectly acceptable to pull out usernames and passwords real quick. Um, so they can monitor encryption keys and passwords as users log in. Yeah, and frighteningly, a, an attacker logged into a cloud machine would be able to exploit Zenbleed to spy, spy on other tenants without special privileges. Yeah, that's that and the the ability to exploit that on a, on a machine and via a web page, which is the other uh, method of attack. Uh, seems to be the the scariest parts about this. Apparently, relates to a specific instruction, the uh, Zarupa instruction, 
I'm glad you could pronounce Which that because I couldn't pronounce it. I looked at that. I've been looking at that all day, going, "How do you pronounce that?" <laughs> Zarupa, the V is kind of silentish, yep. I guess. Um, can be used to zero the upper 128 bits of the YMM register. Uh, if you want to get it, uh, it's been been assigned a CVE. Mm-hmm. Um, the take another quote from the article. The issue has severe security consequences and is easily exploitable. To illustrate this, we have developed a reliable method of leaking register contents across concurrent processes, hyperthreads, and virtualized guests. Yeah. So yeah, you're right. If you, you're across uh, across threads and you've got you know a window open in one and you're logging into something in another window, then potentially that malicious website could be reading what you're doing. And so I look at this from a cloud provider's perspective and saying, okay, if you're using their AMD EPIC processor, which is one of the Zen 2 processors that's affected, uh, you could potentially have a thousand different machines running on that processor. And if it's so so simple to exploit, there's no reason why a malicious attacker couldn't spin up a machine on an AMD processor and and start exfiltrating data. And that's yeah. that's start that's quite um that's quite a risk. Start slurping data out of all the other that's cores. It. Yeah, not a problem. Yeah. So the the good part about this, I suppose, if there is a good side of this, it only affects Zen two based processors, which is includes the Rome server class processors. Um, it also affects uh, Ryzen Threadripper Pro thirty nine forty fives, Ryzen seven Pro forty seven fifties. Uh, the Ryzen 7 5700U and the Epic 7B12, which, um, I mean, that's that's a lot of processors. Um, mm-hmm. But it is patched. It is, it patched. is patched, yeah. I was just trying to see see if I could find the microcode patch for it. So it is, it, microcode patch is available. Yeah, nice. so it, surprisingly, um, and this comes as a huge surprise to me, Citrix led the way with the patch. So, I mean, it doesn't affect their hypervisor specifically, but obviously, their customers are running AMD Zen 2 CPUs, so they were the first ones to release the microcode patch. Okay, so if you're running an AMD system, make sure you get the latest microcode. I think uh, that should be pulled down with the Windows update if you get it, right? Yeah, so if you're running a Windows machine, you should get it. Um, if you're yeah. running Linux, the uh, Linux firmware update project should uh, deploy it for you. I know mine, oh, I did yeah. an update on my machine uh, yesterday, and I got a new firmware that was getting applied during the reboot, so I'm assuming it's done that. I haven't actually checked, to be honest, but because uh, I'm running an AMD. Yep. Yep, nice. Uh, yeah, good good one to be aware mm. of. All right, let's move on. How about we move on with the AI, AI Wars? Wars. Quick ones this week in the AI Wars. The South Australian government trials its own generative AI chatbot. They have. Look at yeah. them getting all on the front foot of this. Now, they don't say what uh, chat engine they're using, do they? No, they, they've, they've made some references to OpenAI and ChatGPT in the article mm. that, that mm. we're reading from, but they haven't said exactly what they're using. Yeah, so the South Australian government was able to produce its own version of a generative AI chatbot oh, there you go. like ChatGPT. Um, what the, what were they trained it on? I, think I they wonder it whether on. they pulled down the, uh, the meta AI that's been open sourced and they're using that. So it's likely that they've just used Vicuna because you can get Vicuna and you can, you can train it with your own data as well. Yeah, quite possibly. So I, I I like this. They they've said in here uh, in this submission that uh, since the release of ChatGPT in November 22, um, the South Australian Education has been reviewing ways to support the responsible and effective use of ChatGPT and other related AI capable technologies. So it seems to me like they're trying to get on the front foot about how to use AI in classrooms and how to control the use of AI in classrooms. Um, yeah, that's right. Because if they don't do it, the kids are going to go off and do use ChatGPT anyway. Right. I mean, my my young right. fellow is already looking at ChatGPT to write his essays, and I 
prevent it because I'm nice <laughs> yeah. like that. Because it ain't going away, yeah. right? So they've got to do something about it and they've got to teach the kids how to use it because this is, this is the new world. That's right. So they, they're looking at um, capability building initiatives to support teachers and students. Um, as well as an observational study to understand how it's being used and the impact it can have on teaching and learning. So, I mean, another article that that we're looking at um, after this is all about um, the regulation of AI um, mm. and how Google is actually de- developing tooling to detect when something has been generated with AI. So mm. I'm assuming schools are going to want to see that and use that technology so that they can detect when uh, someone has not been 100% forthright in their assignments. <laughs> That's right. But, you know, the assignment may be use a generative AI tool to do blah, and yeah. that's perfectly legitimate, 100%. right? It's, it's, it's now a form of it's just another tool that you can use, yeah. right? Whereas, whereas the use case that my son wanted to use was – he had to write a poem from his English class and it was all about um, – he had to write an Australian poem from his English class uh, or for his English class, I should say, and he uh, he just came home and he was like, Dad, how do I get on a chat GPT? And I'm like, why? <laughs> oh, because I need to write a poem for my English class. I'm like, well, no, because that's not you writing it. That's a GPT writing it. You know, well, I mean, that's where he went wrong to start with. He shouldn't have asked you. He should have asked Google how to get on the chat GPT, <laughs> and then that would have told him, right? So, like, uh, you just let the cat out of the yeah, bag. Yeah, well, <laughs> he, uh, he did try getting onto Bard, but it would have let him on Bard because he's got a child account. Ah, there you go. There you go. Um, so, the trial is running over an eight-week time mm-hmm. frame uh, in several secondary government schools in South Australia. So, it's not it's – not, Primary school, it's the older kids yeah, that that's are using right. it. And you'd imagine it'd be the seniors as well that'd be putting to it. Um, so, yeah, one, one to watch out for and see see how this is adopted across the board because it's going to be interesting to see how this develops. I guess this is akin to you know when the internet first came along. It's like, what do you mean I can just search for something <laughs> immediately and just find the information I need for my assignment. You don't have to go look in encyclopedias and like copy out, aimlessly copy out paragraphs oh, from the encyclopedias. Remember those days when you used to have Encyclopedia uh, Britannica in your house? Or, uh, yep, or what yep. was the other encyclopedia that we had? There was a there was an American version as well. I can't Because Encyclopedia Britannica was obviously the English version. The British, yeah. Um, yep, yep. And then you had the American. Uh, and then if you were lucky, you had Encarta, Encarta on, yes. on a CD-ROM. Yeah. Yeah, wow. That brings back some memories. Single speed CD ROMs, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah. Kids these days don't know how lucky they are. Don't know. Um, so I guess yeah, it's akin to that, right? It's like now I've, instead of just searching and finding someone's article, I just ask a chatbot and I, f- I find it tells me. Yeah, uh, just it's interesting. I've got uh, so I've actually installed the Opera browser. Just just playing with it. I haven't played with Opera for for quite some time. Uh, they actually have an AI built into the browser. Just a button on the sidebar along with like, as you can have on the sidebar of Opera, you can have like your your Messenger and your Twitter and your uh, WhatsApp and all those mm. sort of accounts in there. But they've actually got an AI button there as well. And you can just jump right. in and ask it questions and it'll go off and find the answer for you. Yeah, right. And it returns the answer in, in, the, the, in, the, in yeah, the bar in the or in the window. Yeah. In the- yeah, it's right. um, it's pretty cool. It's called Aria. Yeah, right. Re- really good for people's ADHD when they really want to get distracted from what they're doing and they just have a sudden thought and go and type it in there. 100%. <laughs> um, yeah, so you mentioned this other article. We'll just move on. You mentioned this other article. Google is having productivity talks with the EU on AI regulations, Cloud Boss says. Yeah, so Thomas Kurian's been... Um, been uh, talking uh, to CNBC, and he said uh, they want to find a path forward with e- with the EU regulations on on AI. Uh, obviously, the the EU um, has a number of worries around AI. Um, one of them being the concern it may become harder to distinguish between content that's been generated by humans and that which has been produced by an AI. Um, yeah. And that's where that yep. that Kurian, reference. 
And Kieran has, that's right, sorry, I was just going to say, Kieran has said they're working on technologies to ensure that people can distinguish between human and AI-generated yeah. content. Yeah, and, and he's also come out and said these technologies have risk, but they also have an enormous capability that generate true value for people. And I, I agree with that. I agree with, with both parts of that statement. There is a risk involved with AI because we don't know what it's capable of. It's much the same as when we first brought computers in. We didn't know what computers were capable of. Um, and so now we're looking at a system of having AI regulated to not do stupid things or what we would consider stupid things um, versus still providing the, the benefits that society wants. Um, goes on to say the company unveiled a watermarking solution that labels AI-generated images at its I/O event last month. So that's great, right? Yeah, watermark all your AI yep. stuff, right? But that's Google doing it. What if I spin up Vincuna, you know, or like a, a home lab that's got it? I mean, we're, we're yeah. getting there. You know, it's going to be powerful enough. I don't need no stinking watermarks on that. I'll just just create all the AI content yeah, I like. that's exactly right. There's there's no reason why you can't spin up Vacuna on a whole heap of um, NVIDIA GPUs now. Mm. Create your own content. Yeah, so right? I think I think one of the one of the things here is um, protecting against copyrighted content. So um, I've been a massive critic of the music industry previously because they are really really slow to get on the ball. Um, certainly with changes, uh, we all remember we were around in the, in the nineties and early two thousands when, uh, the Napster yep, era, when, when <laughs> we all used yeah. to have Napster. Um, but what they what Google are doing here, it's equally important, um, to protect copyright. So we don't want to be putting artists out of work. That's, that's not the goal here. So what he said is, um, in providing those tools to recognise if the content was generated by a model, um, they say, and that is equally important as saying copyright is important because if you can't tell what is generated by a human or what was generated by a model, you won't be able to enforce it. Right. But just on the copyright thing, we kind of already have a solution for this. There are models around that have been trained on a data set that is copyright free. Mm, that's right. So Adobe have this, um, and there's there's music models around that have been trained on music that is freely available on the yep. web. Uh, and then you know that your artwork piece is is free of any copyright, all all, all the way through the chain. So yeah, just to finish up on this point, um, Kieran has come out and said we have said quite widely that we welcome regulation. Uh, we do think these technologies are powerful enough. They need to be regulated in a responsible way. You know, working with governments in the EU, United Kingdom, and many other countries to ensure they adopted them the right way. So we know Google's doing the right thing. Do no evil. Um, we surely hope the other um, the other providers of of AI technology are doing the right thing, the ethical thing as well. But um, you know, I'll say it again. I think there's a big empty space when it comes to the open source side of things. They don't have to be regulated, nope, right? That's it. Yeah, it's uh look, I commend Google for doing the right thing here because it's it would be easy just to ignore it. Alright, well we might finish up on that. Um I uh I think we've had a bumper show this week. We we've covered off plenty of subjects and you even snuck out one and <laughs> snuck a sneaky one in on me. I did indeed. <laughs> I'll go away and continue to wrestle with this uh Pixel Watch here and figure out what's going on. <laughs> I'm gonna go and open up my champion innovator box and uh see what goodies I've been set this time. Oh yes, this sounds great. But uh go to iTunes and write us a review, that would really help the show out. Um, don't forget, uh, we have a Twitter there. For the meantime, I've actually got a bit of a plan in mind for what I want to do with that. Interesting, Ian, see the icon there? It has, it's changed hasn't it? for that, that Twitter link. <laughs> yeah. And don't forget the website. Uh, you can just Google that and you'll find GCP Life. Um, and, of course, today's sponsor was Kazna. At Kazna, we make your Google Cloud solutions possible. 
I think that's about it from me. Anything else from you, no, mate? I'm. Uh, I think it's about time to get back into some more GCVE prep. That's it. Oh, I can't wait to get have a good look at that project. Mm. It sounds great. All right, guys. We will catch you later. Bye. Bye. Google Cloud, uh, Google deploys, uh, Cloud Deploy gets deploy parameters, new console creation flows, and reduce pricing. Cloud Deploy. Did you change this? I did. I did, because it was the SAP one. You cheeky bugger. (laughs) (laughs) I know. No, I changed it because the SAP one was like, man, and this one was much more interesting.